Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by the journalist Ray Snoddy. Born in Northern Ireland, after university he started as a cub reporter at the Middlesex Advertiser, and after a brief stint at the Oxford Mail and cutting his journalistic teeth at the Times, in 1976 he moved to the Financial Times, where he spent 19 years, building up a reputation as the UK's most respected media correspondent. He returned to the Times as media editor in 1997. Ray's well known to the public as a TV presenter of editorial discussion shows, starting with Channel 4's Hard News and of course more recently with the BBC's Newswatch. Author of a biography on the media tycoon Michael Green, he also wrote The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, which focused on the ethics of the newspaper industry. In 2000, he was awarded an OBE for services to journalism. Ray, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Wow, that's another quite a good biography. Well, all the, all the things in it are, are accurate, but as with all of these things, it's the detail that matters. Um, what are the bad bits that we've left no, out? No, not so much the bad bits. It's just the element of chance in all of it, uh, the... When you do a progression of, of someone's life, it looks as if it holds together in a coherent way. It wasn't like that at all. I suppose I was always looking for something slightly unusual to do. And I did write an article when I was still at school for the East Antrim Times, my local newspaper in the county Antrim, and I got paid £2 for it. And that's still, in a way, my definition of a journalist. In the age of bloggers and endless information, the only way you can tell a journalist now from any old blogger is, do you get paid for it? Is it professional? So, and then I went on to, uh, I was on the student newspaper, but the job in the Middlesex Advertiser was sort of interesting in this would never happen today. I was packing ice cream in Lions Made Ice Cream Factory in Greenford in minus 20 degrees. And in the, during the little sort of breaks, I picked up a paper and there was an ad for trainee journalists. Oh, you'd never and, get that and, now, and I, I got on the 207 bus to Uxbridge that I'd never heard of, walked in and talked my way into a job. That's incredible. Nowadays, there'll be hundreds of interviews and tests, and I would have never become a journalist in modern times because I wouldn't have known. And what I didn't know was that the Middlesex Advertiser, like the Oxford Mail, where I went on a progression, was um, was owned by Pearson, the company that owns the Financial Times. I'd never heard of Pearson. I'd never heard of the Financial Times. So what seems like an orderly progression was just chance. And there's one thing. You know, there's one thing I must say about the Middlesex Advertiser. It was the established broadsheet paper. Um, you know, 150 years old. Across the corridor, there was a brash upstart called the Hillingdon Mirror, which was a colour midweek tabloid. Wow. On that paper was a scruffy reporter with a beard called Greg Dyke. Wow. Uh, I think I was probably a sharper reporter than him, but then he became director general of the BBC and chairman of the FA, so yeah, he didn't do so bad. It's always who you know, isn't it? I mean, I go back, you know, way back with a few of my friends, 10, 15 years and so on, and they're they're all in quite senior positions now in the media, and you, you do call in the old favours. It is who you know. A little, a little bit. The interesting thing about, um, and we'll maybe talk about the difficulties of writing about the media while being in the media of and writing about your em- 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 employers. Some some people who write about the media like writing about the media and like its endless variety. Uh, Torrin Douglas, who I believe has appeared um, in this series, was one of those who stayed, like I did and still do. But others have used it um, perhaps more rationally as a stepping stone. The mm. person at the Financial Times who took over my job was one James Hardy. 
uh, the editor of the Times and now director, director of, of news at the BBC. At the BBC. So, so I, I think in a way, writing about the media gives you a little bit of a, a nice vantage point should you want to use it for that purpose. Do you think Torrin had it easy? Because the BBC loves kicking itself. You know, when you present Newswatch, I always get the sense that, uh, in a sense, the more that you kick the BBC on the show, that adds to the editorial credibility. But do you, would you really have written a piece in the FT slagging it off, it being but a I did, but I, know, I, but, I, but I did. How did it go down? Well, well I, I, there, are, there are two examples I can give you. I was, I was on a trip to America, and for reasons that I don't understand, um, uh, uh, a media person in the Midwest. I, I had a dreadful lunch. They served cold tea instead of beer or wine, but that was the mid, that was the mid disgraceful. That was the Midwest, and we got talking about Pearson. He said, "You know, Pearson are going to buy Thames TV," and I squirrelled that away. Went back to London, and the very next day, it was Pearson's annual results. I went up to the chairman of Pearson. I said, "I hear you're going to buy Thames TV." He said, "Speak to Frank Barlow, who was the chief executive at the time." Frank Barlow said, "No comment, no comment." In the way that to his own employee, just, it, it was it was just, I could not have wished for more confirmation. <laughs> Went on the front page of the Financial Times. That's incredible. My story, and no one interfered. Pearson really are terribly aware. I think they still are, but uh, then they were anywhere else. You'd have got fired for such a story because. Mm. I, when the deal finally went through, I rang up um, the chairman of Pearson, Lord Blakenham, the then chairman. Ah, Mr. Snoddy, he said, you've cost us the odd five to ten million pounds. Really, Lord Blakenham? The, <laughs> the deal was linked to the share price, of course, which went up after my story. But not a, not a word was said. That's so they genuinely special. Do respect that genuinely, wall. They genuinely do respect those, you know, those particular. Second thing, you, re- you referred to my hard news. Uh, on Channel Four, and uh, Bernard Clark, the um, the the guy who chose me and let me loose on that particular world, um, and the independent producer who made the program, said, "You know, Ray, we're going to have to turn over the FT. I know you can't actually report it, um, but but you really will really have to do it, and you're going to have to stand in front of it." And they got someone who was leaving the FT, and he did a very hard hitting piece saying and. Uh, including quotes, quote, uh, video quotes from the uh, chairman of the Wall Street Journal saying that the FT doesn't do really serious investigative journalism. And another former FT journalist who said they printed a correction on my story, which was right. Mm. Um, I waited, this went out, and I waited for the explosion, and it drew, sort of came, but it was more of a squeak than an explosion. I was summoned to the editor, Apparently on the sixth floor or whatever floor it was, they had viewed this thing. Who was the editor then? Uh, Richard Lambert. Oh, right. And Richard Lambert, and, the well-known name. Uh, and a thoroughly decent man. Um, Richard Lambert said, um, how many programmes left in the series? And I said, six or seven. And he said, perhaps before you sign up for another series, maybe we ought to have a discussion. <laughs> now, I mean, rather than being fired on the spot or to show him the door, I mean, that was as tough as a slap on the wrist got. And wow. of course, I signed up for another series. I never consulted them and they never complained. So, so I, I, although I left the FT and, you know, I'd been there 19 years and it, it was time to go if I wasn't going to spend the, my entire life there and I didn't want to do that. But I couldn't speak highly enough of their honesty and integrity. I mean, in a sense, you're like the, the police complaints authority, aren't you? There's always that question, who watches the watchers? And, well, correct, and it's difficult. And you're the media watching the media. Yeah. Have you had any hostility from any, anywhere? Uh, well, 
one last story on the FT before uh, before I move on. The National Union of Journalists Chapel passed a vote of no confidence in the editor. It was to do with a pay pay dispute, and I went down. And I mean, sometimes I think, was I crazy? You know, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't do these things now. I actually went down after that meeting, knocked on the door of Richard Lambert's office, and told him the NUJ had just passed a vote of no confidence in him. Uh, what did he have to say? And instead of throwing me out, he gave me a sort of rational quote. When you talk to him at that moment, is it obvious in the moment that you're asking him in your capacity as a journalist rather than as yes. an employee? Yes. Be- because and that was respect. The key thing, that was respected. Yes. But I'm not saying it would be respected everywhere. But of there course are moments not. of confusion. I mean, look at when Gavin Davis spoke to Andrew Marr, you know, at the moment over Hutton. Yes. He wasn't quite, there was always yes. confusion for years. My later. view, my view, and uh, as you're, you're probably going to ask it anyway, how, well, you are half. How do you, how do you write about the media and in particular an organisation from in, within it? To my mind, there was only one way of doing it. Um, and maybe I'm rationalising after the event and I just did it on autopilot. But treat it as if it's any other story. Yeah. Do the job to the best of your ability to someone stops you. And of course, you, you can't usually, I mean, the, the, the hard news thing was, was, was a bit unusual, but you, you can't usually slag off your own organisation. But as long as you stick to the facts and, and then the others can add the spin. As long as you get the facts right. And mostly, I, everybody makes mistakes, but mostly I did. But I, I mean, I work in PR, so you know, occasionally I'll write the odd press release. And of course, the secret of PR is you never write the press release for the press. It's always to impress the client, unfortunately. Of course. And, and you know, it's very difficult because, of course, you might have five or six bits of information, but you have to choose what goes in and what goes out. And clearly, paid for by the client, you put the, the best stuff in and minimise sure. the other stuff. I mean, well, that's the difference between a PR and a journalist. You, you put in what you think ought to be there, not what not to please, not to please somebody. When I went um, when I went to the Times, and that was sort of uh, that was quite amusing in its own in its own right. I was uh, asked for an interview. The FT wanted it with Murdoch, and I suddenly came back from the dentist one morning and was told to come straight away. Um, you know, Murdoch's at Sky, and he'll he'll talk to you. So I went in, and it was slightly slightly strange because I was sat. Into the where was Sky then? Was it Osterley or was yeah, it, yeah, yeah, Osterley, and into 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 the boardroom, and there lunch was set for two. Wow! Um, and Murdoch um, wanted to hire me, so I was hired personally by Rupert Murdoch. And how did that go? Talk well, us through it if you don't mind uh, spilling the beans. I mean, no, 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 there's no particular no particular beans to spill. Uh, the two, a number of observations. The first story I wrote about what was then called B Sky B. It's now Sky. Somebody said to me, we don't write stories about B Sky B. And I said, you do now. And it was the weekend and it went went all up, the whole way up to the duty editor who said, well, it's factual, there's no reason why we shouldn't. So I, I, I broke that little log jam by not, by not carrying that we don't, that, that there's areas that you can, you know, where you can't go. The, the bit that was more difficult was... Not, I believe, Murdoch himself, who's quite thick-skinned and broad-backed. It was the sort of medium underlings who were scared of how Murdoch would react to a story. And did they scare themselves because they yeah. just assumed yeah, he would that, react to Exactly. But I did notice that if I had a negative story about the BBC, who are the enemy, obviously, yeah, it, would it got the page lead. lead. There was yeah. always room for a page lead. Yeah. Anything vaguely positive about the BBC, my story was cut to a paragraph or two. Or I a mean, nib. But that was our nib. I mean, that was just their, their sort of instinct. I had considerable freedom 
particularly when I had a column on the media pages contracted in the end when they found out that there was no advertising. They uh, they did a leader column uh, attacking Greg Dyke's appointment as Director General uh, of the BBC because, to sort of cut it down to the, the heart, because he was a lefty and a Labour supporter. He donated to the Labour Party in the past. Oh, yes. yes. No, he was a well-known supporter of the Labour Party. And I called my wife and said, I'm just about to write a column in the Times, which goes against their editorial policy, which says that um, Greg Dyke will be a good director general of the BBC. Um, are we ready? <laughs> are we ready for unemployment? <laughs> so I, I wrote it. and uh, But what I argued was not actually, which turned out to be not too far off the mark. I said the danger was not Greg Dyke being being uh, sympathetic to the left. The real danger that he would be str- he would be bending over backwards to appear neutral and independent. So the risk. That that was the risk, and that's that's how it came about after the Hutton inquiry and, and and all of that. He could. Uh, I <laughs> Melvin Bragg once told me the story, and uh, it was Melvin himself. So I have no no reason to doubt it. Tony Blair was a, a guest at a dinner party at Melvin Bragg's house around that around that time. Tony said to Melvin, "Look, this row with the BBC and Greg Dyke, I really don't want this to go any further. It's got ridiculously out of hand." And um, Tony Blair gave Melvin his direct line and said, "I've got fifteen minutes to spare in my diary about eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. Ask Greg to ring me and we see if we can sort this out." Greg didn't ring. Because, because he was he worried about the worried about, wor- worried about being seen as a Tony Blair stooge, whereas any rational person would have seen the damage to the BBC that was going to result was so much greater than... And that's that was the danger of, of Greg, that because he had a past, because he was known politically, though now, of course, he's very anti-Labour because of what happened to him, Hutton and all of that. Mm. Um, but uh, I have no reason to doubt... Why would Melvin make up a story like oh, that? Absolutely not, no. Yeah. Tell me about Murdoch and the FT. Well, there was the most remarkable thing that Rupert Murdoch loved the FT. He liked to be in it and you could get through to him He's relatively. He's always wanted to buy it, hasn't he? The and Wall Street Journal was the even, second best. he even tried to buy it and had tea with the chairman, the Lord Blakenham, who showed him to the door and he wasn't very best pleased. Indeed. But I will never forget what happened. I, th- I think it was 1999, but around that, around that sort of time, the FT always chooses a man of the year. And Murdoch had just been expanding satellites all around the world, and they chose Murdoch as the man of the year. And, of course, later, um, later Private Eye did a story saying, I'd chosen them for this in order to get a job on the Times. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it was just before Christmas, so I called the, um, their, their, their comms director, and she said this would be really difficult because he's about to leave um, for a boating um, a, a holiday over Christmas in New Zealand. And uh, I got a call 7pm one evening at home or 8 o'clock. And she said, the good news is you've got your interview with Murdoch. The bad news is it's in New York tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock. It slowly dawned on me <laughs> uh, that the only way to do this was Concord. So I chased the editor of the FT, Richard Lambert round Christmas parties to find him to get authorization to go to New York on Concord, which I duly got. Awesome. I turned I turned up I turned up in Murdoch's office and he said, Right. Um, How long's the, the flight to New York on Concord? You know, I can't 
Sorry, I can't. I can't. I can't remember. It's about two. It was about two and two hours, two Incredible. and a half. Incredible. Anyway, um, um, yeah, about two and a half hours. Um, and and uh, he, he said, uh, "Look, I'm really Paul. I'm sorry about this. Yesterday the diary was empty, but it's all filled up now." Oh, I thought well, this is going to go down really well. Concord, no interview. And he said, "Go away, do some Christmas shopping. Come back at five o'clock and uh, travel with me on the uh, jet to Los Angeles." As you do. As, as, as you, you do. do. So having started off in London, I ended up that night in Los Angeles. But um, coming off the, and, and non-stop, four or five hours non-stop talking with Murdoch and one unbelievable story after another, I, I found out on that, uh, on that trip and used on the front page of the FT uh, the fact that he was, that Sun was going to support Tony Blair. Mm. And that was how the editor of The Sun found out. Well, he read the FT. He read the story himself. But, oh, but it got even it got even funnier. Um, when we got off the East private jet, there was a there was a white Mercedes. So I came down the steps and jumped in the back, thinking there would be a chauffeur, and found to my horror that Murdoch was driving it himself, and he was in the front and I was in the back. So you were being chauffeured by so Murdoch. I was being chauffeured. I wasn't chauffeured for very long. <laughs> you never saw a hack moving faster in his life to get into the front seat beside him. But that's. Uh, and, then, and, then, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't travel back by Concord. I, I, I was told rather, rather bitterly afterwards I'd used up an entire month's um, money for the for the foreign desk. So was it and the Atlantic I, equivalent of National Express? It was for the right. Way back? It was right in the back. <laughs> so, but you would have thought, he, you know, being the operator that he is, that he would have known to have been maybe a tiny bit more discreet. You know, you're a journalist. No, the, on the no, record. No, no, that's the wonderful thing about that's the wonderful thing about Murdoch. He's uh, wonderful for a journalist. In later years, the um, the PR people have tried to keep him away from journalists. You ask him a question, and he can't stop answering it. I've got uh. I've got a whole series of exclusives on Murdoch over the years, um, um, and uh, but this this one, I I uh, we were talking the way on the way to the the airport in New York to go to, and, and he was asked talking gossip. He loves gossip about politics. And I said, would you, would you, would you consider, would you consider, um, you know, Sun uh, supporting supporting Blair? He said, yes. Uh, the Times and the Sunday Times, I leave to the editors, which is a bit of a laugh because he chooses the editors who know what he thinks. But he says, with the Sun and the News of the World in those days, I, I get to play. So I just squirreled that away. And then I was invited back up to the studio the next morning. Or just before I left, I, I, I said, um, Mr. Murdoch, you don't mind if I use that story about the sun unattributably. And there was the most die oh, the, the silence. And another thing you have to know with Murdoch is there are long silences when he thinks, and you must mm. never interrupt. You must wait and wait. While he does his wait. the cog's turn. About a minute later, he said, "Yeah, okay, Ray." Wow. And of course, that was that was morning in Los Angeles. Um, four thirty and five there at five o'clock in London time. Wrote the story by Raymond Snoddy in Los Angeles. Where, <laughs> what a byline! Where could I have got such a story from? Who could have told me there was no mention of uh, any quotes from Murdoch? I stuck to my I stuck to my agreement that it was unattributable, but everybody knew, of course. Of course. One of the questions I wanted to ask you because you mentioned at the beginning that you, you consider someone a journalist if they're producing content and for money. Um, it's sli- slightly, uh, uh, slightly jokey, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the point is, how, how do you define what a professional... I mean, the other bit of it is somebody who's been trained mm. and, and, and taught to check things. But the simplest, the simplest demarcator is, is, do you get paid for it? 
So my question then is, do you think Guido Fawkes is a journalist? Because he, he, he earns a decent living for three or four staff now on the uh, Guido Fawkes website. Lots of politicos, lots of journalists go to, he breaks stories. This is the difficulty for me is, would you call him a journalist or would you call yeah, him I a think, mischief maker? Uh, uh, well, journalists and mis- mischief makers are not that far apart. And I think journalists should be mischief makers as far as possible within the law. Um, no, I think he most emphatically is a journalist. And I think we have to be stop being po-faced about who a journalist is because that's where the technology has gone. Anyone can be a journalist uh, in the sense that anyone's got access to the means of communication. And the de- democratization of that is, is, to, be, is to be welcomed. But you want there to be a serious core of people who actually check things and not just distribute the latest gossip, a rumour, some of it malicious and some of it damaging. So is that up to, would you say then it's up to readers to then differentiate? Because if I read The Times, at least I know there's a, yes. a complaints yes. mechanism and an editorial yes. accountability. Yes. But if yes. I read Guido, I know that it's the Wild West and he can say what he likes. I think most readers are sharp enough to realise that. And I bet you, you do what I do. When, when, when there's some sort of uh, scandal brewing and when the, the, the official papers haven't been able to name the person, she goes straight on the web to find out who it is. And everybody does that, or nearly everybody. So, so there, there's probably these parallel dual systems, and that's, that's what it will be forever and a day because that's the new reality. Well, I get my breaking news from Twitter. That's the thing. It's, it's sure. usually people tweeting it before. before yes, yes, yes. Though um, a lot of tweets are about television programmes and mm. a lot of tweets are are um, about articles in The Times and stuff like that. But yes, the traditional media, maybe it started with radio, for goodness sake, um, but um, the traditional media have lost the power to uh, do breaking news for the obvious reason that every single person has got a sophisticated, almost everyone has got a sophisticated camera that can do video and the number of professional television cameramen, uh, photographers are 0.1111 percent mm. of the total population. So, so if something like like these like awful events in in, in, in France, there'll probably been or the or the, the murders in the streets of London of soldier. I mean, there were people there with cameras filming, you know, so that that is part of the mix. It will be particularly with unexpected events where newspapers and, and traditional television will their role will remain is to set things in context, explain and separate out the wheat from the chaff. And there's a lot of user-generated content now on, you know, on the normal rolling news channels. If there's if there's a member of the public there on the ground filming stuff, they always use it. I mean, I remember sure. television needs pictures, absolutely. And, and uh, but they they have to be careful because some there are some real mischief makers out there who actually uh, completely concoct pictures just to, either for money or to or just to go yaboo, you know. So you have to check the authenticity of stuff. I was watching someone on YouTube the other day, and it was uh, it was actually about the murder of Lee Rigby, and yes. it had it showed uh, obviously the the video footage of the killers, uh, the murderers saying why they'd yeah. done it, but it said courtesy of ITV News, and I thought, well, it's clearly not. It's obviously a member of the ITV, public. ITV the, the, ITV News bought up the rights. There was I, somebody from ITV was was on on the spot very quickly and bought that's the how rights it works, to it? for money. I see. Yeah. 
Because I imagine they, they own the, they own the intellectual. <laughs> if that's the, not the wrong word, they own the, the intellectual property. Yeah. But clearly, they were kind enough to share it with other the networks, weren't they? Because uh, but yes. the, I see that because I've often wondered uh, as a techie. I think well, if you've got six or seven minutes with a video, that must be very difficult to upload to the BBC News website or whatever. Even if you are on the scene, because you, you don't yeah, have that bandwidth. You wouldn't, you wouldn't perhaps want to upload all of it. You know, you know that's the other thing: the beheadings and all of that around the world. I mean. <sighs> They're all there for people who want to see them. I don't think they should be uploaded. Some of those dreadful, dreadful, dreadful things. And obviously, um, traditional broadcasters show enough to suggest the horror of the thing, but not the full horror, nor should they. It's a very difficult thing, that, and I agonise over it, because I do believe in passionately in free speech, but I, I don't want people shouting at the funerals of soldiers, um, even though... You know, I think they should have the right to do it. I, I, I actually want to stop them doing it, which of course means they don't have the right. Well, Where do you yeah, draw the line? Uh, I mean, it's, it's impossible. I remember in my law degree, they, they, they drew the line. Uh, we studied the Supreme Court the, of the, the US. Fi- the fire issue. Shouting fire in the crowded theatre that will immediately ca- cause a stampede of death. That that's the it, limit. Yeah. Well, so I think all you can do is set the outer parameters. And that's, cl- I think most people would agree that that was an abuse of uh, free speech. But it's arrest, it's a spectrum and gradations, of course. Very, very to be to be argued about by media correspondents. <laughs> I mean, some of these some of these issues have been we've been speaking about for years, of course, we? decades. And we'll I, you, know, you, know, you know, you know, why? Because there's 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 no right answer and there's no ultimate solution. I mean, somebody, um, uh, uh, some somebody like the new uh, the new head of IPSO, the regulatory body. I mean, um, what what is a definition of the public interest? You know, I mean, you can argue to the Kais government, mm. one person's public interest is another's abuse of privacy. Well, just because it's <coughs> interesting to the public doesn't mean it's and, a public interest. Of that's the, I mean, yeah, that's I want the, the usual reversal. I, I, when celebrities actually, have affairs, said, I, I do want to know who they're having yeah, an affair yeah, with, even though it's not of sure. my business. It's human nature, isn't it? I think it might be. I, uh, I've sort of changed my mind. I mean, I, 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 I did write, write a book which came out of the Channel 4 series on, on the the um, uh, press abuses last time around, Kevin McKenzie and the Sun and mm. all, of that, all of that. I think I've changed my mind a bit for two reasons. One, in the hierarchy of rights, I put freedom of speech perhaps higher than the right not to be offended. Mm, of course. And two, in the modern world of the internet, to be completely censorious is no longer practical anyway. So on two grounds, uh, I, I don't like uh, the hacked-off mobsters at all, on those two grounds. No, I agree. But, but do you think it's, it's getting worse in terms of... Um, I mean, what final question on this then, in terms of what would you say about Twitter trolls? Because they have the right to, uh, to, to start tweeting, but you see some horrible things, don't you? And you can understand. I do. And the practicalities are there as well, because like you say, you can throw them off and disable that account, but then they'll yeah. just set up another one. Um, you can never, you can never, you can never deal with uh, with Twitter tro- trolls, and the police are wasting thousands of man hours chasing abusive people around the, around the internet, which is a complete asinine waste of public time. People should just ignore them. If people, if people, uh, if I like, I like Twitter, and I, I do, I do, I do tweet. If somebody says you're wrong because or you haven't thought of this, or what you say is a daft, I'll engage with them. If if they just say, 
why don't you just go away, you tosser? <laughs> I, I, I just, I just ignore it. I mean, you know, I'm not going to block them. I'm not good. No, I don't. I just ignore you them. Don't bother to block I, them. Right? I wouldn't even give them the time of day. I just ignore them. And and wh- why all this hoo ha ha about? I, I, I think one of our fundamental rights, maybe, is the right to be rude. I hope of I'm course. not very often, but I think that's one of our rights too. How do you compare freelancing to full time? Do you enjoy the freedom? Is it? Uh... Yes, I do. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's you've got to distinguish between two two groups of freelancers: those who've had a lovely time, a nice pension, and no mortgage, who embrace the freelance life at um, at a, at a, at a later stage in your career, and the ones I feel really sorry for. They're having to, young people are scratching and freelancing and being treated abominably and uh, given, given insulting sums of money. And uh, journalism is very, very difficult for young people to get into. But the paradox is, and it's maybe something quite nice in a way, though difficult in its consequences, the paradox is that the fewer and fewer paid full-time jobs there is in journalism, it seems to be the more and more young people want to do it as if it's a... A challenge, and I talk to students from time to time. Fairly recently, Brunel University, people studying the media, and I, I, I always tell the story. Uh, I know it's changed times, but what the the a Geordie a who um, was a main trainer for Pearsons, though he was actually he was actually on the training training on the course that I went to a million years ago, and he said, journalism is the very worst of jobs before a, th- a theatrical pause unless you happen to think it's the best. And those um, who happen to think it's the best will climb over many hurdles to get there and the rest will... I Another thing I tell them is, don't worry, don't worry if you don't make it as a journalist. It's actually an excellent training for almost anything. It is. For law, for writing, for PR. It People who can see the wood for the trees who can work within deadlines quickly and write well and logically and that a journalistic training should provide some of that they're very valuable people and they and they can go on to be prime minister although mr cameron's pr not journalism do you think there's a journalist type i mean when i think of if, if you said journalist to me i'd think of someone like rob mendick at the sunday telegraph who's, who i've known for quite some time really nice guy but just when you interact with him you can just tell even off the record that he's a journalist he has, he's such, got that such deep curiosity he's i think always trying i think to find there i think there is a type but i would but I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it i mean i've met many different sorts of journalists uh, most are most are much less cynical in reality than they pretend to be that's mm. the cynical persona they actually tend to be reformers uh, at, at heart or at least quite a lot of them are but the, the words and I said this very thing to the to the to the students of Brunel um, curiosity is part of it uh, a sense of mischief gentle gentle emphasize the word gentle troublemaking <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know um, a little bit of Tenacity, you know, as 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 one said, and, and a little bit of rat-like cunning doesn't doesn't go amiss either. Absolutely. Final question then, Ray. What's the biggest scoop you've ever had? And did and did you know you were going to get it the day before, or was it something that came out of the blue? We thought, wow. Writing about the media, you don't you don't really get the sort of uh, sort of scoops that set the world alight. Well, the I, mean, I, was writing, I was writing. I was writing. I was writing about a writing about an industry. 
a communications uh, machine and how it interacts with politics, people in the world. But I suppose, um, I suppose um, there was a long time ago when uh, Mrs. Thatcher decided to put ITV franchises up to the highest bidder. I had the splash in the FT uh, that that's what was going to happen. I then had lunch in the good old days of journalism. You got stories over lunch, over the second bottle of wine, dear God. Absolutely. I was having, I was having a Friday liquid lunch with a, an analyst who said, uh, you know, I've heard that STV have bid less than a million pounds for their franchise. And I thought, that was sealed bids, wasn't it? Sealed bids, deeply confidential. Yeah, of course. Uh, I don't know how he found out, um, but I started ringing contacts at STV and they all said, froze. You could hear them freezing on the, on the line. Uh, no comment, no comment. And I knew this is this is where being a sort of correspondent uh, or a sort of regular person, uh, you get to know people and I trusted them to warn me off. I wouldn't mm. go there if I was you or something like that. They didn't. I wrote a story saying that um, that Scottish believed to have bid less than a million. Share price went up like a rocket. I then decided to start seeing if I could do all the others. And by the end, I'd got virtually all of them. Uh, I found out that... Wasn't that uh, a breach of the bid process? They shouldn't be declaring. I mean, even it's not commercially to their it advantage. Was. That I was investigated by the Stock Exchange. And, and uh, later on a judicial review... The ITC tried to um, uh, tried to get me done for contempt of court. They thought I'd got documents when, in fact, <laughs> I just got the story in a pub yeah. in the traditional yeah. manner. In the old fashioned uh, way. But, um, but I mean, this was this was all uh, twenty years ago. Um, but um, and indeed, some of them bid only a pound. You know, Scottish turned mm. out to be either one pound or two. There well, that is less than a million. Was, uh, well, <laughs> it, it was, but nobody could believe that it was as little as that. Yeah. You know? um, and uh, I, no, I, and Central, I got less than a million. And then I got down to second bite of the cherry. A week later, I got down to a pound. Um, but um, the then Director General uh, of the IBA, it was not ITC, um, uh, who was conducting the auction, uh, wrote, published his diaries from the time. And I kid you not, um, he called in a security firm to sweep the boardroom for bugs. For bugs, because he thought I'd bugged their boardroom, and that was the only way I could have been getting my stories. Rather than silly fool, just talking to people in pubs (laughs) (laughs) in the old-fashioned way. (laughs) I, I, I had the I had the great pleasure to write the review of the book, and I said, "No, John, no bugs, just old-fashioned journalism." Wow. And on that note, Ray, I just wanted to say thank you ever so much for talking to me. I've really, really appreciated uh, you taking the time to do this. And uh, I've learnt an awful lot and I always enjoy our conversations. It's been very, very enjoyable as well. It was a pleasure for me too. A Big Things Media Production. <laughs> Big Things!